Today's video was recorded on March 28, 2023. In today's lesson, we look at the final of the seven holidays, the Festival of Tabernacles. And this festival is a dress rehearsal for heaven. It celebrates the fullness of redemption. And it's the only holiday in which we're commanded to celebrate with joy before the Lord, just like heaven. And what you'll see is that the many ways that Jesus interacts with this holiday are just remarkable. Now, another thing about this holiday, and we'll do more on this next week, is that I agree with those scholars who see this holiday, that's the Festival of Tabernacles, as the most likely time of Jesus' birth. Now, again, more on that next week, but this becomes a really important holiday when we see the symbolism taking place on the holiday and how that then gets integrated into Jesus and his mission, his ministry here on earth. So I think you're really going to enjoy how dynamic this holiday is and how central it is to Jesus's ministry. Now, we've previously let you know about a challenge that was given to us by one of Fig Tree Ministry's founding donors. And that challenge was to increase the number of regular monthly donors by 25, and this was going to be by Easter 2023. And as we mentioned a couple weeks ago, the response has been greater than we could have imagined. And so thank you to everyone who has joined us as a monthly donor in support of our mission. And all of you know by now, Fig Tree Ministries is a 501c3 nonprofit organization, and we rely on the generosities to help us carry out our mission. And that mission is to help others just like you go deeper into your biblical studies. And we do this by understanding the original context within which the Bible was written. And I think you'll definitely see that today when you understand the first century context of the Festival of Tabernacles. So much of what Jesus says and does begins to make sense. It enriches our experience of reading the Bible. Now, we recognize as an organization that one of the most reliable ways to move into the future is to build a strong base of monthly supporters. And so we're asking you again today to help us in meeting this challenge. If you've found value in our Bible lessons, we ask that you would consider becoming one of our new monthly donors. Now, any dollar amount qualifies, and we're grateful for any support you can provide. As a monthly donor, you'll be joining other fig tree friends from around the globe. And your support as a monthly donor plays a crucial role in helping us plan for the future. Regular support helps us increase the number and quality of tools that are available to us. This helps us expand our reach and ultimately increase our impact for Jesus around the globe. Now, becoming a monthly donor is easy. We've included a link below in the description section that'll take you directly to our donation page, which, by the way, is through a partner organization called DonorBox. You can also click on the link above in this video. Again, it'll take you directly to that donation page. So thank you for considering this challenge. We're excited to see more and more fig tree friends as monthly donors, and together we can meet this challenge and make a real difference for the kingdom of God in a world that desperately needs biblical education. So we hope that you've been enjoying this series on the Lord's appointed feasts, and how understanding the context of these holidays helps us see so much of what's happening in the New Testament. And I think you'll really enjoy today's lesson on the Festival of Tabernacles, 
and how in Jesus God came to tabernacle with us. This is, and I'll say this many times through the presentation tonight, the Festival of Tabernacles is the dress rehearsal for heaven. So if you want to experience heaven on earth, you fly to Jerusalem in the fall and you attend the Festival of Tabernacles. And people will say that you've never seen joy until you go to Jerusalem on the Festival of Tabernacles. And realizing one of the stark things about going to Jerusalem is there are people very close geographically who want to kill you. And yet the Jewish people live with such life that it's, it's almost, you can't fathom it. So even in the midst of our enemies are all around us, we're going to celebrate the presence of God. This is the Festival of Tabernacles. Now, this is number 10 in the, our series. And the background picture is that Temple Mount. Now, it's, it's changed since Jesus' day. The big gold dome in the top left, that's a mosque now. But one of the cool things about this festival, and what we'll see is what happens when Jesus is engaging the festival, is customs had developed. So year after year after year, as you're celebrating this uh, holiday, you develop customs, just like at Passover. The customs are based off of something in the Bible. And one of the customs had to do with light. And there's a passage in the, in the text, we'll read it later, that when the day of the Lord happens, there's going to be a light that's never going to go out. There's no longer going to be darkness. And that's what John says in Revelation. But the Old Testament says the same thing. And the chapter that it says is in, we'll get there at the end, it's the Festival of Tabernacles. So, there was a custom that developed where the priests would erect these giant candles, candelabrum, and the candles stood 75 feet high in the courts of the temple. They used the old clothing of the priests as the wicks, and there's Jewish writings that say it was so bright that the courtyards throughout Jerusalem were all lit up. And again, it's like the night, the darkness was gone, right? I mean, I think perhaps like the Olympic torch or any eternal flame, there's something like that, some kind of idea of the eternal flame. And so this is one of the primary themes of the holiday is light. And watch what Jesus does on this holiday. It's very cool. And of course, that's what, you know, makes it so amazing. Okay. so. um We'll talk more about this as we go on, but I just want to give that a, as way of introduction. All right, so I'm going to do this again because this is our final holiday. Now, like I said, next week we're going to talk about Jesus's birthday, which I think is this holiday, the Tabernacles, and then we'll talk Hanukkah because that's such an important holiday. Jesus celebrated Hanukkah, so we at least have to know something about it. But as we've gone through this, I hope you can see that there's a distinctive flow to these holidays. 
and they're all about redemption. And, you know, we don't use redemption language as much as we use salvation language. But what we're talking about is God's redeeming the world, uh, the presence of God, the people of God, the place of God. And of course, that's the Bible began with, with those three together. The Bible ends with those three together. That's how God, what it, God is up to. He's redeeming the world. So tabernacles is the celebration of redemption. It's when God redeemed not only them out of Egypt, but it's when his presence dwells with the people, tabernacles with the people. So we once again, holidays, Passover, 14th day, uh, that's in the springs, March to April, in fact, two weeks from now, or a week and a half. March to April, so you have Passover, 14th day, unleavened bread, the very next day, 15th bread, or 15th day, and then first fruits. And those all happen in the same week. And this is, coincides, of course, with the Passover and Exodus. Then they head out of Egypt and they head towards Mount Sinai. 49 days. And on the 50th day, you celebrate the festival of weeks. That was the celebration of God bringing the Torah down on Mount Sinai, but it's also for us Pentecost. So God says, count 50 days, Pentecost in Greek. Then we go to the seventh month. This is in the fall. We, got, we talked about the Feast of Trumpets. There's, an atone, or, or there's a trumpet blast to call us to repent, to come back into relationship with God. You have atonement. God's going to atone for our sins. And then it all ends with a not only seven-day festival, but going on to eight days is the Feast of Tabernacles, and that's what we'll do tonight. And this all happens fall, September to October. And the whole point is redemption. The whole world is enslaved. The whole world is in darkness. The whole world is, whether it's our own sin or it's physical slavery, it doesn't matter. The point is, the spiritual movement is from darkness to light. That's the spiritual movement, just like Genesis 1. It was evening and it was morning, darkness to light. That's how God moves you. So you start in um, slavery. God delivers you out of the slavery. But even when we enter that relationship with God, well, we still sin. We, the number one sin is replacing God with something else. And we all do that on occasion, probably more often than we'd like to. But even the golden calf can't derail God out of this covenant relationship. And so God says, look, I'll, there's atonement. Repent. Come back into relationship with you. I'll forgive your sins. And when he forgives the Israelites in Exodus, what happens? Well, they end up, they build the tabernacle. And he's dwelling that last, very important, last paragraph or two in Exodus. That the presence of God is dwelling powerfully with the people of God in the place of God, and that's the tabernacle. So what's our festival? Tabernacles. What are we celebrating? Redemption, the fullness of redemption. Uh, it's about the presence of God dwelling with us. Okay, wait till you see what John does with that, with Jesus, right? So it's all going to be coordinated because God's more coordinated than we are. Okay, so those holidays, very important that we recognize that they're not separate, even though sometimes we treat them as, as separate, but there's a distinctive pattern to them that helps us understand redemption. Okay, I think God had to give us like 
He had to give us things to act out every year so that eventually we'd finally understand, you know, like, it takes me a while to figure these things out. So he says, look, I have to, I'm going to force you to do it every single year so that one day you'll realize, oh, what I'm doing is what God's doing. So, okay, point two on your sheet. And of course, this is going to be the Festival of Tabernacles. Um, if you would, let's turn and read a little bit in Leviticus. So at least you'll see there's, it's a little bit confusing. And so um, depending on what you read, one of the more in-depth authors I was reading was just talking about how difficult it is to, to kind of pin down what's going on with the Feast of Tabernacles. And I'll, I'll show you what he's talking about in a minute. Okay, so if you look at Leviticus 23, and it's verses 33 to 36, and this is the commandment to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. So verse 33, and the Lord said to Moses, speak to the Israelites and say to them, on the 15th day of the seventh month, the Feast of Tabernacles to the Lord begins, and it continues for seven days. So notice. There's one idea of a seven-day festival. Verse 35, on the first day, there shall be, you shall be, or I'm sorry, on the first day, there shall be a sacred assembly. You must not do any regular work. For seven days, you are to present an offering made by fire to the Lord. And then you get this verse, on the eighth day. So there's, God's going to add one more day. Okay, so on the eighth day, you're to hold a sacred assembly present an offering made by fire to the Lord. It's in a solemn assembly. You must not do any regular work. So the question is, when's the greatest day? When's the end of this festival? Well, technically, God says, look, it's an eight-day festival, but there's a, there's a seven-day festival inside the eight days. A little bit confusing, and there's not clear within traditions how that's fleshed out. But anyways, I just want you to notice there's seven-day period, and then there's an eight-day period. Okay, so what are we doing on the Festival of Tabernacles? Well, it's a, it's, I mentioned, you're celebrating the redemption, God's presence back with his people, it, and it's a dress rehearsal for the final redemption. So the last thing we'll read tonight is going to talk about the final redemption, the day of the Lord. And when does it take place? What are we celebrating? We're going to celebrate the Festival of Tabernacles. It'll be the last thing we read tonight. And then one of the cool things about this is there's a commandment to rejoice. So if you have your Bible still open to Leviticus 23, look down to verse 40. So verse 40, On the first day you're to gather the fruit of majestic trees, the branches of palm trees and boughs of leafy trees, and of willows of the brook. And then here's the commandment, and you are to rejoice before the Lord your God for seven days. Now, if you want to look more, at some point, I put this on your handout, go to Deuteronomy 16. Read verses 13 to 15. You'll see how many times the word joy shows up in that one. So it's a commandment to rejoice. This is the only holiday where God says, come before me in joy. And there's way more about joy that I'm not even uh, putting into this particular lesson. We did that a few years ago when we talked about this holiday. Okay, uh, I mentioned this. It's an eight-day festival, 
uh, but there's a significance of the seventh day within that eight-day festival. So if we just look at a quick timeline, you would have one, two, three, four, five, six. On the seventh day, that becomes a very important day because the normal festivals, or I'm sorry, the normal festivities uh, that we'll talk about in a minute end on that day. But you add one more day as like an extra day. Maybe God gave you a little time for travel on the holiday, something like that. Or I think of it like as a seven is, a, is completion, but eight is like the step off to the next. You're stepping off into the infinity. If this is going to be like heaven, well, then we're going off from this completion of a, our period of time here on earth. You take one more step and you're into the next world. Now. This seventh day, and we'll talk about this in a minute, so just hang with me. In Hebrew, it's called the Hoshana Rabbah. Now, Hoshana Rabbah, I'll explain this word in a minute. We would pronounce it, or we would translate it, the Great Hosanna. So, Hebrew, Hoshana, English, Anglicized English, Hosanna. Okay? So what does that mean? So number four, by the way, I have to do a whole bunch of data points and then we'll pull it all together in the end. What does Hoshana mean? Right? Okay. So Hoshana is a cry for salvation. So if we look at the word Hoshana, the first thing we recognize here is it's based off of the Hebrew word Yasha, and that is the verb to save. And the person that we follow, is his name is Yehoshua. We say Jesus in English. But it's his, Jesus' name is based off of the word save, and it's Yah. Yah is God. That's the short name for God. So Jesus' name is literally God's salvation. Well, what's his function? That's his, that's his function, too, right? It's God's salvation. So, Jesus' name is based on Yasha, save. Then you have the Hosha. Now, where do we get that? Well, and I apologize for going into a little bit of technical with, with Hebrew, but you don't have to memorize this at all. But in Hebrew, different um, you have different verb forms, and then the pronunciations change. So, one of them is called the Hifil, and that's a causative form. So, Hosha, you see the H on the front, that means cause to save. And so what they're saying to God is cause to save us. God, we want you to act. We want you to cause to save us. Okay, when? And that's the last one, na. Na means now. So the cry is save now. Save now, God. Okay, what do you want me to do? Now, by the way, this is part of the reason, because God's coordinated, right? If God's going to send his salvation, Yahshua, into the world, would it make sense that he sends it in the holiday where everybody's crying for salvation? God says, okay. And when do you want it? Right now. We want it right now. Okay, so you'll see next week, so much of this fits what Jesus is doing. Now, what are they crying out for? Well, it's salvation, but not in the not necessarily in the ultimate sense, like we talk about salvation. 
it's the 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 weather in Israel is just like San Diego. So sometime around the end of April, you don't get any more rain. And so Israel goes all through so now they're they have to harvest all their their food, they get all the fruit off the trees. It hasn't rained in 6 or 7 months. What are they crying out for? And the number one thing each year at the festival is rain. Physical, because the rain is going to provide physical sustenance. So there's, it's a cry out to God to invoke rain. It's at the end of the, just like in San Diego, when it's a hot, dry summer, and everybody's worried about the fires, and people start praying that God would send some rain. Now, you got enough rain this year, but the point is, is at the end of a, the dry season, everyone's usually wants some rain. And it's the same way in Israel. If they don't get rain, they die. It, you, you know, today, we, if we don't get rain, oh well. But in there, in, in Israel, if you don't get rain, it's a famine. So the salvation and this holiday takes on the idea of rain. They're praying for rain. Now, there's a number of reasons behind that, all from the Bible. But the point is, is that the rain in their mind is living water, okay? So living water is water that's delivered by God. It's water that brings life. And what they want more than anything is as they go into the new growing season, that they get water. And rain in the ancient world was a blessing. So they viewed it as God's going to bless us by sending us rain. Okay. So that's what, in, in the physical sense, they're praying for salvation by rain. But what about in the spiritual sense, right? They want deliverance. They want to be back in, in, the, in the community with God. It's that idea of redemption, what we would call salvation, being ultimately saved. That's what they're crying out for, too, the presence of God being palpable there in Israel or in Jerusalem. So, okay. Save now. That's the cry. So the next time you hear someone say Hosanna, and they might say it out of context, just remember it means save now. And it's actually a commandment. Where it's like we're giving a command to God. Okay, number five. So that's that point on, on Hosanna. Number five. Again, just like all of our holidays, we develop all kinds of rituals that, you know, you lose, the, you, you don't really understand how you got to that ritual. They're lost over time. What is happening uh, as, as the Jews are coming up to the point where Jesus is going to be there, they've developed elaborate rituals around their holidays. Again, we're, we don't have writings that say, here's the conference that decided to do this. But at this holiday, the two main rituals for the, temple, or for the Feast of Tabernacles in Jerusalem, the two main ones, there's going to be a ritual about light and there's going to be a ritual about water. Okay? So the first one, light. And I mentioned this. You're building that giant candelabrum, or however they had that thing structured. They build it right there in the, the temple courts. You're putting those two gigantic, or two or three or four or five, or however many they had, uh, candles up, and it's basically lighting up the darkness. And they were the eternal flame all week long during this festival, those would be lit. So it's a celebration of light. 
Now, is it spiritual light or physical light? Well, the answer might be yes, but largely spiritual, right? Because the light of God illuminates your, you know, I was blind, but now I see is not physical blindness. It's that I'm now aware of God's presence. I'm aware of creation in a different way. So I've been given insight. You know, that's why we have the little light bulb going off when someone has discovered something. It's like you've been illuminated inside your mind or illuminated spiritually. So they want God's presence, which is light, to join them. Okay, the second one is water. And this was an elaborate ceremony. They call it the water libation ceremony or the water drawing ceremony. And this had to do with, uh, now this isn't, yeah, you know, part of what we have to do with Westerners is we have to let go of the way that we think about things and try to take on the mindset of an Easterner, ancient person, who's way before the scientific revelation or uh, revolution and way before the uh, Enlightenment period and all that. You want more than anything rain, right? You want God to pour out water from heaven. And so a libation is that you pour out something here on earth, and that's what you want God to do up above. And so there was this elaborate ceremony that would have to do with pouring out water so that ultimately God would pour out water on you as a blessing. So here's what they would do. This is a model, and I, I apologize. Anytime I have to say apologize, it means I probably shouldn't put the picture up there. But when the video is out, you, could, you can, for those watching on video, you can pause here and look in more detail. It's hard to see on, on the screen because everything looks the same color. This is a model of Jerusalem. This is at the Israel Museum in Jerusalem. And it's a model of Jerusalem of what they believe it may have looked like, or at least close, in the first century. It's very cool to see this. This is the temple and the Temple Mount. So this is where the Festival of Tabernacles and the water libation or water drawing ceremony would begin every day. And every day, the priests would lead thousands of people in a joyous procession, right? Kind of like, so it's Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade for seven days in a row, but it gets bigger and bigger and bigger, like Mardi Gras gets bigger or Super Bowl Sunday gets bigger or whatever. You start at that temple and you go downhill. The, right where that arrow is, that's David's city. It's the oldest part of Jerusalem. You go downhill and the place that you go to is called the Pool of Siloam. It'll be important in a minute. You follow the priests down. They have a silver bucket. They bucket up, or a silver pail. They pail up some of the water, and then everybody, with singing and music and horns and whatever, go back up. Again, it's like a giant Mardi Gras parade, and then the, they'll eventually have a, a ceremony where they pour that water out on the altar, signifying, God, here's what we want you to do. Pour out water on us. So it's an elaborate ceremony, happened every day, seven days in a row, okay? And all here at the temple and the pool of Siloam, 
That's a, that'll come into play in a minute here. We got to know something about that pool of Siloam. All right, that's the um, that's the 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 light and the water. Now, point number six, and again, it's just kind of a data point. What's the point of having them stay in a tavern? Or, or like, okay, so God says, what I want you to do every year. We didn't read this, but it's in it's in um, uh, Leviticus. Is you're gonna live in a sukkah. You're gonna live in a tabernacle, a hut. And what you're gonna do is you're gonna live there, and you're gonna sleep there, and you're gonna eat food there. It's kind of like going camping in a way. And then the text says, so that when your children ask you, right? Why are we doing this? Ah, because when God had us in the wilderness, right? So there, the tabernacle takes on the symbolism of God's presence and protection in the wilderness. So there's tremendous symbolism that's far more powerful than just a hut, okay? So what's, what's some of the symbolism? Now, the first thing I want to do is just show you, uh, this is a tabernacle. I, I got this from Adobe Photos, but it's a it's, or I'm sorry, I got this from Wikipedia. This is a tabernacle in uh, Jerusalem. And they have, spe- of course, everybody would have specifications. They have, just like we have Christmas tree decorating contests, they have tabernacle decorating contests. One of the key things is the roof has to be made of natural materials, and it's not supposed to be completely enclosed. You're supposed to be able to see the stars. And there's some great teaching in that, but that's what a sukkah is. You eat dinner in there, you invite guests over. It's part of the ritual, okay? So what is the tabernacle symbol? Well, like symbols uh, symbols themselves are very powerful. Uh symbols convey a ton of information, right? You just do a painting of the cross and there's so much information packed in that cross for every single person that comes across it. So no matter what direction you come at a symbol, all of these apply at the same time. It's got tremendous power. So they're able to contain a, a significant amount of information in, in one little thing. So uh, like everything in the Bible, though, there's a physical aspect to it, and there's a spiritual aspect to it. And what's important is that when we read the Bible, we read it, the physical, and then we read the spiritual, kind of like Exodus. It's the physical exodus of the Israelites, but spiritually, it's the exodus for all of humanity and all of us. So you have two sides, and they're both applicable. Okay, so physical and spiritual. So what's the symbolism of the tabernacle? Well, it's the wilderness journey. That's what Leviticus says. When God took you through the, the, the wilderness, he's your shelter in the wilderness. But it's about the wilderness journey. It's temporary. So there's an idea that you even, maybe you even think about your own life. You're in a temporary shelter for a period of time. That the wilderness journey doesn't last, there's an end to it. So it's a temporary shelter. And then one of the cool things is, and it's part of that idea that you're removing something above you, is it's the idea of eliminating material. And I put down here on your handout, you want to do something that eliminates the material that separates us from recognizing the divine presence. And perhaps this is like if you want to go on a spiritual retreat, you go out to nature, you take things away, you take the material excesses away in your life, 
and you begin, the spiritual comes more alive. So it's something about eliminating the material. It helps you do that. Now, this part, the spiritual part, is going to get a little strange because you guys have probably have never heard this. But if you want to read about it, you'll, you'll, you could find it on the Internet. In the first century, there's a rabbi. He's in the first century, and it's documented that he says the tabernacle is spiritual. It's a cloud, what he calls the cloud of glory. Now, what's the cloud of glory? What led the Israelites through the wilderness? The cloud of glory. It's God's presence. It's a pillar of fire by, uh, at night. It's a pillar of smoke or a cloud by day. But it's the presence of God who manifested himself at a particular spot here on earth to lead the Israelites through that wilderness time. And he says the symbolism of the tabernacle is the cloud of glory, that on all sides God's presence is with us and God provides protection. So there's a spiritual aspect to this. Finally, I, I put this, there's a book on the fall festivals and I put it down as the uh, footnote, the author writes that the tabernacle is the manifest representation of the presence of God here on earth. So the presence of God, right? Now, to us Christians, where did the, when the presence of God came to earth, in what form did the presence of God show up as? Jesus, that's what we would say. He, the presence of God manifested himself as a human being, Jesus, here on earth. But this is really important because in the first century, the spiritual meaning of that tabernacle, this big tabernacle symbolism, is the same thing as the presence of God. Ah, and they're called the clouds of glory. Okay? Now, this is really important because the Festival of Tabernacles is central to John. And John, if you turn your handout over, one of his main ideas that he emphasizes throughout his gospel is the glory of God. Okay? So he's got an emphasis from beginning to end about the glory of God is manifesting itself here on earth. Well, the rabbis say he manifests himself in the tabernacle. And then John says this, so turn to John 1, and it's verse 14. And we'll be in John for the, pretty much for the next eight readings, probably, so you're, you're, good, you're good to be settled in John for a minute. Okay, John 1, verse 14. We've all read this a, a thousand times, but, and the word became flesh and, well, this translation says, lived among us. Some might say, dwelt among us. But the word there, lived among us, is the same word that's used for the tabernacle. It's the same Greek word that's used for the tabernacle. The word became flesh and tabernacled among us. Now, why does John choose to use the word for tabernacle? Because that's, that's redemption. That's the clouds of glory at tabernacle. They say the same thing. And John's saying, no, 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 not the tabernacle. 
he tabernacled among us. He's in a temporary shelter here on earth. The presence of God, he's going to walk amongst us. So it's very, in this case, very important to know that, that, uh, that word there, to dwell, lived among, dwelt with, is to tabernacle. Not that that's an official word, but the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. And then he says, we saw his glory. So here's John talking about the glory of God. It's the same thing the rabbi said about the, the tabernacle at this festival. It's the manifestation of God's presence. So he says, and we saw his glory, such glory as, as of the one and only of the Father, full of grace and truth. So it's very interesting. And I think, again, when we talk about uh, Jesus's birthday next week, the fact that John uses the word to tabernacle with us, pointing about the presence of God, when the presence of God showed up on earth, he tabernacled. What time of year did he show up? At the Feast of Tabernacles. Okay? So all these things start to make sense when we understand the context of the holiday. Okay. Next point. We're almost there to the good stuff with Jesus. We're almost there. Okay. Many of you have seen this before if you've been to Israel, but ah, I don't want to disappoint you too badly tonight. The one they may have shown you is not the one that's actually the Pool of Siloam, okay? Let me... This is the Pool of Siloam. It's going to enter the Jesus story in Tabernacles. Go back to this picture. You have the temple. You go down the hill from the temple by David's city. There was a spring. The Gihon Spring comes out. It got redirected, and it ends up making a pool of water. That's what we call the, uh, the Pool of Siloam, okay? And, of course, they would go back up to the temple. But many of you, if you went to Jerusalem before the year 2005, they would take you to this place. This is the traditional Pool of Siloam. And I emphasize the word traditional because somewhere around the 5th century, there was a Byzantine queen that said, build a pool around the exit of Hezekiah's tunnel. So I'm throwing a lot of words at you. There's a tunnel system that moved the water from the spring inside the city. It's called Hezekiah's Tunnel. And Hezekiah's Tunnel exits right here. So a Byzantine queen says, this is the Pool of Siloam. They built a church there, and now for thousands of years, people have gone and said, that's the pool. Now, the problem is that the scholars in Israel, the archaeologists, said, but it doesn't look like a first century pool. It's not built like a pool at all. Yeah, this might be it, but we'd kind of doubt it because it doesn't look like it. But we won't say it out loud because that would upset people. Then what happened? In 2004, so this is, this is what's so cool about what's happening in Israel. They're discovering things today that make the Bible come alive, things we've never seen before. So in 2004, they had to fix a sewer pipe. I mean, think about how God works. He, used a guy, he uses a guy fixing a sewer pipe. He comes, and he, he comes across a step, an ancient step, and they called archaeologists over. They look at the step. They stop all the work. And what do they discover? They discover the Pool of Siloam. Now, you can see in that picture there, the top left, there's a big black pipe. That's the sewer pipe. They were fixing that sewer pipe for the two villages on the opposite sides of this uh, finger as it goes down into the valley. 
This is the Pool of Siloam, first century pool, built exactly like a first century pool. They officially made the claim in 2005. And so for years, we were talking about the wrong pool. Now, spiritually, you can still get the same experience in Israel, spiritually, but we're at the wrong pool. It's 75 yards wide, 75 yards, three quarters of a football field wide. It's a huge pool and it's all natural. So the water will fill it and then drain all on its own. Very cool. And the, you can see all the people in the picture there. Oh, here's like some natural water. And then you have, all the students are standing on the steps. So they had multiple levels of the pool as the water would fill up and go down. Now, what's really cool is about 10 years ago, Jews started to reenact the water libation ceremony in Jerusalem at the Festival of Tabernacles. They got a priest. They all got in a procession. They're blowing their trumpets. They're, they have their tabernacle, everything. They would come down, dip water out of the Pool of Siloam, and go back up to the Temple Mount. So this is really cool that we're getting, for 2,000 years, they never got to do that. Um, so this, this is the pool, and this is the main point. The pool is intricately connected to the Feast of Tabernacles, because this is the pool that for seven days in a row, the procession would come down with the priest to draw the water out of that pool, okay? And we're going to see in a minute how important it is that how Jesus uses this pool at the Feast of Tabernacles, okay? So here we go. Now we're at the grand finale. Jesus is finally going to show up. So look in John 7. So if you turn to John 7, perhaps your Bible has a heading over John 7 verse 1. Some Bibles have a heading that says, Jesus went to the Festival of Tabernacles. So when John tells us that, we got to know tabernacles to start pulling all of the symbolism out of what Jesus is doing. So John chapter 7. Now look at verse 2. So right off the bat, John gives, sets the context. Now the Jewish festival, the Feast of Tabernacles, was near. Yours might read a little bit different, but it's the Festival of Tabernacles. That's the context for, about, for what Jesus is going to do. Okay? Now, from verse 2, move your eyes down to verse 14 and tell me, how many days of the festival is it? Like, how many days is the whole festival? Well, we have seven days till the greatest day of the festival, and then you go eight. So here, verse 14, but when it was halfway or midway or in the midst of the feast, Jesus finally goes up to the temple. But you can see it's a long festival. It goes a, it goes a, a week to that eighth day. So he's, he shows up in the middle of it. That's no problem. Lots of people would be showing up in the middle of this festival. Now, What's going on? What's going on every day at the festival? What are the priests doing? They're taking the procession down the hill to the Pool of Siloam. They're putting the, the water in a silver pitcher. Huge ceremony, right? Again, Super Bowl Sunday, all the way back up to the Temple Mount, right? Every single day, seven days in a row, getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. Now, Turn to verse 37, John 7, 37. Now, after all of that buildup, this verse should completely make some sense and hit us different than it would before. 
because we've done nothing but look at the context of the holiday. We know Jesus is at the holiday. And if you look at verse 37, now the last and greatest day of the feast. In Hebrew, the Hoshana Rabbah, the great Hosanna. Everybody has their palm leaves. They bring palm leaves off the palm trees. They beat them on the ground. It sounds like it's raining. How many people are there? Thousands. Packed at that Temple Mount, right? So packed, he has to stand up and shout or stand up in a loud voice. And what does Jesus say? If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. What's his topic? Water. This is the ceremony. This is the holiday that celebrates water and has a huge water ceremony. That's the holiday then. He's going to declare in a way that he's the living water. Right? So verse 37, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Verse 38, he who believes in me, as the scripture has said, from within you will flow rivers of what kind of water? Living water. Now, is he talking physical water or is he talking spiritual? Yeah, this is spiritual water, right? It's the when you believe in Jesus, there's a spiritual flow. In fact, the next sentence tells us he meant by this the Spirit. But look what he's doing. It, he, this is so uh, amazing because he picks the exact moment that the nation is celebrating living water to make this announcement. And if we don't know that, it's not like we get it wrong. It just enriches the text. And it says, yes, everything makes sense, even if I don't understand it at first. Okay? So Jesus is the living water, but it's the, it's the place that he announces that. Now, what else is he going to announce at this holiday? A holiday that celebrates water and light. Well, here's number 10 on your sheet. He's going to heal a blind man. And it's right, you have to, Jesus healing this blind man, we have to connect it to the holiday that just happened. He's healing a blind man, and he's going to claim that he's the light of the world at the holiday that is celebrating light, okay? And what he's going to do with the blind man is he's going to combine light and water. And he's going to combine water, not just any old water, water from the pool of Siloam, okay? So this is so cool because the miracle is the combination of the holiday. So look now, I'm going to take you through a couple of these. John 8, 12, okay, here's where he's going to announce that he's the light of the world. Again, how important is it to understand? It's at the, that's the context of tabernacles that's not in our Bible, but they did anyways. So, um, well, I'm sorry, not in Leviticus. It is in the Bible, but not in Leviticus. So Jesus, uh, again, he said, he spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Now, physical light, spiritual light. Right? He, uh, he who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Spiritual light will fill your life. Okay? Now that's, uh, so that's his first declaration. Next, turn to John 9, verse 1. So very next chapter, and this is going to be the healing of the blind man. 
So John 9, verse 1, I'm just going to do, I'm not going to read all of this because we don't have time, but he comes across a blind man, uh, blind from birth, very important, blind from birth. Everybody knows who he is, right? Then if you go down to verse 5, he goes, blah, 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 blah. They have a discussion with the, the disciples. Go down to verse 5. While I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. So he's reiterating that he's the light of the world. Now look at verse 6, the very next verse. When he spits on the ground, he made mud with the saliva, anointed the blind man's eyes with mud, and then he says, now watch where he's going to send him, go wash off in the pool of Siloam. That's the tabernacle pool. And for so many years, I read this and thought, well, who cares what pool he had him go wash in? What's the difference, right? What I didn't realize was I had no context to the holiday. I mean, for seven days, the priests were at that pool, pulling the representation of living water out of it to create rain. But on a spiritual level, it's living water. It brings life. And what does Jesus do? As the light of the world, he brings light to a human being, not only physically, but spiritually, because the human being recognizes Jesus as Messiah. And then he intermixes that with the pool of Siloam. So he's the light of life. He's the water of life. And he combines it at the exact moment that makes sense. And it blows me away. And it's like, ah, I missed it for so many years because I just didn't know the context. And I mean, you know, God doesn't punish us for not knowing. But again, how much richer it is when we can see the magnificence of what Jesus is doing. Okay. Last, number 11. This is what we're going to be doing in the end times, right? And where do we get it from? Well, we get it from one of the prophets. So if you would, turn to the book of Zechariah, uh, two books back from Matthew. This is where we get the idea that the Festival of Tabernacles, not only its redemption, the representation of redemption, but its redemption, the fullness of redemption. That's what we call heaven. And this then, every year, we celebrate this as a huge, joyous festival that we will one day be in the presence of God. Okay? So, Zechariah, first I want to show you, I didn't put this on your handout, please jot it down if you can, verse 6, Zechariah 14, verse 6. This is where you get the idea of candles, those giant candles at the temple, okay? So Zechariah is talking about the day of the Lord. And verse 6, he says, On that day there will be neither sun nor cold, frosty darkness. It will be a unique day, a day known only to the Lord, with no distinction between day and night. Why? When evening comes, there will be light. Now John says in Revelation, There is no need for the sun and the moon because the light is from the Lamb. And he's pulling right from Zechariah. He's putting it in the context of Jesus. But this is where you get the idea. Oh, Zechariah says at the Feast of Tabernacles, now he'll say it a little bit later, but the context is tabernacles, so we build these giant candles, okay? That's verse 6. Now go down to verse 16. 16 and 17. So the day of the Lord is a tumultuous day, 
There's going to be the Har Megiddo. The Har means mountain. Megiddo is a city in Israel. The battle of Har Megiddo will be the greatest battle ever. We say Armageddon. Verse 16. Then the survivors from all the nations, all the Goyim that have attacked Jerusalem, will go up year after year to worship the King, the Lord Almighty. And what are we going to be celebrating? The Feast of Tabernacles. This is what we're going to do year after year. It's the joyous festival celebrating the presence of God. Okay? Now, to bring the point home about the rain, them wanting rain, look at verse 17. What's the penalty if you don't go? What if you said, nah, we're going to stay home and we're not going to worship the king? If any of the peoples of the earth do not go up to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord Almighty, they will not have any rain. Right? That, to an ancient Near Easterner, is terrifying to not have rain. But I want you to see that the prophets recognize this holiday, right? This is what we're going to be doing in heaven. The presence of God, the people of God, the place of God. There's no darkness. Why? Because the Lamb is our light. Jesus is the light of the world. We don't need the sun, the moon, and all of that. So it's going to be an amazing, joyous time, okay? So that's a lot to throw at you. I hopefully, at least the data points kind of built up to that idea. When you finally see Jesus at this, ta- at this festival, it's like, ah, you know, the, v- the old V8 commercial. Could have had a V8 if I had known that earlier. So what are we talking about? It's the celebration of redemption. God is tabernacling with us. John says Jesus, taber- or the word of God, tabernacled with us. The cry is for salvation. Hoshana. Cause salvation now is the cry. They establish, based on the Bible, and there's a a number of other scripture verses that go into this, light and water. We're going to build those giant candelabrums because this is a day of the Lord where the light doesn't go out, and water because we're crying for rain and the, the living water of the Spirit. And then this is going to be the holiday that the whole world's going to celebrate after the day of the Lord as we go up to Jerusalem. So, okay, that is the Festival of Tabernacles, and it absolutely blows my mind every time I go through it again, because you just can't believe how coordinated God is and how many things I'm missing that help me put these pictures together. 